Well, good morning again. Somebody said it back to me. That's good. Glad to be back in the pulpit with you this morning uh, in the gospel according to Luke. Uh, I'm I'm glad to be back to to preach this morning, but I do want to say I've benefited so much from those sermons on union with Christ. The last few weeks have been very helpful to my soul. I pray it's been the same for you. I look forward to that series continuing for the rest of the year. Uh, Today we're back to the gospel according to Luke. We're going to continue on as we work our way through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And today uh, we're in Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 22. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn there with me, that would be great. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 22. And you can follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 18 of Luke chapter 9. Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with Him. And Jesus asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together now as we ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do confess that uh, we are a people who are created and shaped by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask, Lord, now as we consider this text that is so clearly related to our Lord and to His work, we ask for grace to hear with ears of faith, to believe, to repent of our sin, and to be filled with hope afresh, Father, for the everlasting life that you have promised to us in Jesus Christ. God, please keep me faithful to your word today. Please prevent me from saying anything that would be in error or unhelpful to your church. We remind ourselves, God, that we are shaped by the word of God, we're created by the word of God, and so we are accountable only to the word of God. So help me to be faithful today to the scriptures. Give your people discernment. And we do pray that you would bless us, God, as we listen to your word now. We pray that you would bless us and fill us with joy in the Holy Spirit and with faith to believe. And we pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. What is the most urgent question facing the world today? That's a pretty loaded statement in 2020, isn't it? What's the most urgent question facing the world today? There are a number of options that you could choose from. You might say the most urgent question in our day has to do with public health. How do we live now in a pandemically aware world? Or you might say the most urgent question is social. How can we find peace when each week, it seems, brings new chaos and more heartbreaking controversy. Or you might say that the most urgent question is political. 
Who will win the election in November? Will human rights be upheld in places like Hong Kong? What will the Supreme Court rule on next? Health issues, social issues, political issues. There are so many things that feel urgent in 2020. There are so many things clamoring for our attention that it can be hard to single out just one thing. What is the most urgent question facing the world today? But friends, this is where we must remember that we face this question as Christians. That is our identity first and foremost. We are Christians before we are anything else. Let me say that again. We are Christians before we are anything else. And therefore, with the clarity of God's Word to guide us, we can, in fact, identify the most urgent question facing the world today. We can, we can identify what it is. It's the question that Jesus Himself asks us in this passage. Verse 20, who do you say that I am? Friends, this is the question of questions. This is the sum of all reality. This is the starting point for all wisdom. This is where the road splits and you either find life or you continue on the road to ruin. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks. If you've been with us during our series in the Gospel of Luke, then you know that this question has been circulating for some time. You may remember back in chapter 5 when Jesus claimed to forgive sins, the religious leaders said, who is this? Or you may remember back in chapter 8 when Jesus calmed the storm with only His words, the disciples wondered, who then is this that even the winds and the water obey His voice? Or you may remember just a few verses ago, chapter 9, verse 9, when even wicked King Herod gets the question right, who is this about whom I hear such things? Herod asked. You see, this is the question that Luke has been driving at for some time in his Gospel. And that's because this is the most urgent question facing humanity in every age. Who do you say that I am? In fact, I'll argue that every other question can only be answered rightly after we first deal with the reality of Jesus. Do you want to know how to love your neighbor better? Then tell me who you believe Jesus to be. Do you want to find some stability and peace in the face of a troubled and dangerous world? What do you believe about Jesus? Do you want to know where to place your hope for life and liberty? Then answer me this, who is Jesus? Now I want to be clear, I'm not trying to downplay other questions. I'm not trying to downplay other concerns. There are urgent things facing us in the world today. But again, I'll remind you, we face this world first and foremost as Christians. And that means God's Word is what must guide us. And with heart-searching clarity, God's Word time and time again brings the question of Jesus' identity to the fore. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks. And so I'm going to try to make the case today, friends, from the Bible that as believers, we do the most good when we keep Jesus lovingly and clearly in the center We do the most good when we lovingly and clearly keep Jesus in the center, both in how we live and in what we say to and before the world. And Jesus Himself models this for us right here in this passage in Luke chapter 9. 
The last few chapters in Luke's Gospel, you may remember, have been a whirlwind of activity. And that activity has highlighted Jesus' power and His authority. And the displays have been awesome to behold. Jesus heals the sick. He forgives sinners. He calms storms. He defeats an army of demons. He feeds a multitude. And He even raises the dead. One thing after another has been revealing to us the power of Jesus. And it's been awesome. And yet, when all the activity dies down and Jesus finally gets a quiet moment with His disciples, what is it that Jesus focuses on? Not the mystery of miracles, not the display of power, not the momentum of ministry, but this question. Who do you say that I am? When everything slows down, this is what Jesus wants us to deal with. Who do you say that I am? So let's answer this question of questions, friends. And let's answer it from God's Word. Here in Luke 9, there are three points that give us the truth regarding Jesus. These points build on one another, so by the end, we will be able on the basis of God's Word to confidently declare who Jesus is and therefore do the most good to His followers. So, number one, who is Jesus? He is, verse 20 tells us, the Christ of God. Jesus is the Christ of God. As we said a moment ago, this is the first quiet moment Jesus has had with His disciples in some time. The crowds have finally faded away, at least for a little while, and and Jesus can focus in on the twelve. And verse 18 tells us that Jesus brings out into the open the question that everyone has been asking. Notice verse 18. And Jesus asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? So, Jesus is aware of the the popular interest in His ministry, but now it's Jesus' turn to ask the question, who do the crowds say that I am? And the disciples, you see in verse 19, give Jesus the rundown. And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Now, you'll remember that... King Herod, back in verse 9, gave the exact same uh, speculation. Herod gave the, the same rundown to this question. And so the common theme here is that people take Jesus to be some kind of prophet. Perhaps even the great and final prophet who would signal that the last days have come. That's what the crowds think about Jesus. They've seen His signs. They've heard His teaching. And the popular consensus is that Jesus is a mighty prophet. Now, on the one hand, that's a very respectful answer from the crowd. To identify Jesus as a prophet, even a great prophet, is to afford Him a position of honor. It's to give Him a place of prestige. They're saying that Jesus is more than even the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. The crowd knows that Jesus is more than a teacher. So in that sense, this is a very respectful answer. The people hold Jesus in honor. But on the other hand, this answer is entirely insufficient, isn't it? Jesus has done things that no prophet could do. He calms storms with only His Word. And He he raises the dead by His own power. Do you remember that? He didn't pray and ask God to raise the dead. Jesus just raised the dead Himself. No prophet could ever do such a thing. So the crowd's answer is respectful, but it's also inadequate. Respectful, but not enough. This is a small point, friends. 
but it's one that is worth noting. You can have a very high view of Jesus. You can have a very respectful opinion of Jesus and you can still miss the point. He's more than a prophet. He's more than a mighty miracle worker. In fact, that's the direction Jesus takes it in verse 20. He moves from the crowds to the disciples. Look again, verse 20. Jesus asks them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, acting as the spokesman for the group, he speaks up to make the good confession. Notice the stunning declaration that Peter makes. And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Friends, this is the first time Jesus has been addressed with this title in in Luke's Gospel, at least by a a human figure or by a character in the the storyline. The angels declared Jesus to be the Christ in chapter 2. And Luke, as the narrator, told told us that Jesus is the Christ, chapter 2. And the demons know that Jesus is the Christ, chapter 4. But this is the first time that one of Jesus' disciples addresses Jesus with this title. Jesus is the Christ, Peter confesses. Understand, friends, this is the bedrock confession of the church. The reason we're in this room is because of the truth that Peter gives voice to, that Jesus is the Christ. When we say that Jesus is the Christ, we are joining our voices with Peter's to declare that Jesus is the promised One. He is the King who will sit on David's throne. He is the Deliverer whom God has raised up to redeem and save His people. When we say that Jesus is the Christ, we are confessing that He is both the key and the culmination of all that God has done and all that God will do in the world. You see, this confession stretches all the way back to the Old Testament and it stretches all the way into eternity. For all eternity, what will we be declaring before God? That Jesus is the Christ. Holy, holy, holy is He. This is why we're here. Because of what Peter gives voice to. He gives voice to the truth that both creates and upholds the church. We believe Jesus is the Christ of God. And friends, the days are coming when success as a church is going to be defined by whether or not we get that confession from the last generation to the next one. Will we hold firm to what Peter has declared and will we confess it ourselves so that our children and those behind us and those yet to come will also know this truth that creates and upholds the church, that Jesus is the Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is a confession that can only be made by grace. Matthew's Gospel makes this very clear when Jesus tells Peter, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but your Father in heaven. This is a confession that can only be made by grace. This truth was revealed to Peter by the Heavenly Father. You see, you don't stumble into this truth and you don't put the pieces together yourself and then make this exciting discovery. No, to to believe that Jesus is the Christ, you must have that truth revealed to you by God. So not only is this the reason why we are here together this morning in this room, it's also true that we're in this room because God by His grace has given us eyes to see and believe and confess that this is the bedrock confession of the church. That Jesus is the Christ of God. It's a confession that can only be made by grace. 
And so note what this means for our life and ministry as a church. We want our children to make this confession. It's Father's Day. And the thing that I want my sons to confess the most is this, that Jesus is the Christ. We want our children to make this confession. We want our family members and our coworkers and neighbors and people around the world to know this truth. And that means we need, above all, for God to work by His grace. Do you see how dependent we are upon the grace of God for the life and ministry of the church? We need God to open people's eyes and see and believe this truth. Friends, do you pray regularly for God to do this? Do you pray regularly for God to open the eyes of our children and our neighbors and our friends? Do you pray for the miracle of grace that brings sinners to confess this same truth that Peter confesses, that Jesus is the Christ who redeems? Listen, brothers and sisters, we're a church that rejoices in God's sovereign grace to save sinners. And that means that we, above all people, ought to be prayerful. We ought to be pleading with God that He would work so that people would see that Jesus is the Christ. That's a confession that can only be made by grace. So if you want to know how to demonstrate and display your confidence in the fact that God sovereignly saves whomever He wills to save, do you want to know how to make that clear? Be a prayerful person who asks God to open people's eyes to see that Jesus is the Christ of God. Now, in the context of Luke's Gospel, it's important to understand that while Peter has made the good confession, there's more that he needs to understand. Much more, in fact. Remember, people in Jesus' day primarily thought the Messiah would be a mighty political figure who would come in power and overthrow the Romans and establish God's kingdom on earth right now. That's what people primarily thought about the Christ in Jesus' day. And maybe some of those expectations are swirling around in Peter's mind when he says, you're the Christ of God. It, it certainly seems like some of those expectations are because beginning in verse 21, Jesus begins to clarify what Peter's confession means. And, and Jesus tells the, the apostles what kind of Christ that He will be. This is the second point that answers our most urgent of questions. And, and you could say that without this point, we really miss the heart of the Gospel. Who is Jesus? Number two, He is the Christ who suffers. Jesus is the Christ who suffers. Before Jesus teaches His disciples further, He commands them to, to keep this a secret. Notice verse 21, where Jesus very strongly charges the disciples to not tell anyone what Peter has just said. That's, that's strange, we might say. So what's this about? Well, it has to do with what we said just a moment ago. Most people in Jesus' day had misguided expectations about the Messiah. They thought primarily in earthly or political tones. And that's precisely the conclusion that Jesus wants His disciples to avoid. That's precisely where he wants them to not go. Instead of thinking about earthly power or political glory, the disciples must learn the very surprising lesson to think about the Christ through the lens of suffering. Suffering. 
So notice where Jesus goes. Verse 22. Here's the, here's the piece that's missing from Peter's confession, which means this is the key to understanding Jesus. Listen again, verse 22. Jesus says, the Son of Man, that's Himself. And notice He doesn't use the title Christ. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Friends, what Jesus says here in verse 22 is the central piece to His identity. Yes, Jesus is the Christ, as Peter said. But the unique aspect of Jesus' identity is His suffering, His rejection, death, and resurrection. You see, the cross, friends, the cross is the full revelation of Jesus as the Christ. That's what we must learn at this point. It's the cross that brings the Messiah into clear view. And it's the cross that shows us how Christ will save His people. Without the cross, the work of Christ is incomplete. The mission is unfinished. And salvation has not been accomplished. But at the cross, Christ is revealed in His glory. And salvation is accomplished once and for all for all whom God will save. And and therefore, to confess Jesus as the Christ means we must confess Him as the Christ who suffers and dies on the cross. The cross is what reveals Him to be who He is. Listen, friends, many people today are open to considering the life and teachings of Jesus. I know you're thinking, that's not true. We live in a very secular world. Hey, secular people are open to anything you want to say. So people are open to hearing about Jesus. They want to know about His ethics. They really like Jesus' compassion. And all of those things are commendable things to celebrate in Jesus' ministry. Those things are important. They're even essential for living as Jesus' followers in His world. People are really open if you want to talk about all those things related to Jesus. But friends, the peace that gives power to all of those things, the peace that makes Jesus more than an ethicist and more than a teacher and more than just a compassionate soul who's out to do good, the peace that makes Jesus the Christ is the cross where He dies for sinners like you and me. To be a Christian, you see, is to confess your trust not simply in Christ, but in the Christ who suffers in your place. That's what it means to be a Christian. There is no Christianity apart from the crucified Christ. The cross then is essential to Jesus' identity. It's the full revelation. It's the full picture of what it means for Him to be the Messiah. There's something else to note from Jesus' prediction Look again at verse 22. Not only is the cross essential to Jesus' identity, the cross is also the will of God for His Son. Notice verse 22, how Jesus says He must suffer many things. Do you see that? He must. Friends, that's a verb of necessity. It's a verb of divine necessity, in fact. And it's, it's used throughout Luke's Gospel to indicate what Jesus must do. It's used throughout Luke's Gospel to indicate the Father's will for His Son. Chapter 4, Jesus says He must preach the good news. Chapter 13, Jesus says He must go to Jerusalem where He will perish. Chapter 24, Jesus says He must 
fulfill all that was written in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms. You see, Jesus' life moves according to the will of God. His life moves at the impulse of divine sovereignty. And central to that sovereignty, central to God's will, is the cross where Jesus will suffer and die for His people. And that means, friends, that the cross is not a derailment of God's plan for His Son. The cross is God's plan for His Son. Look, I I read in the Lord's Providence, I read Isaiah 53 this morning in my Bible reading, and it's the mystery of mysteries, that it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. Who killed Jesus? God did. And He killed Him for us. And for our salvation. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. It was the Father who put His Son to grief. And so what we witness at Calvary is not the triumph of wickedness, but rather the culmination of God's plan. What we witness at the cross is not the victory of darkness, but rather the accomplishment of God's good and gracious and loving and sovereign plan for the salvation of His people. It's the Father's will determined before the foundation of the world and now realized in Jesus Christ and in His suffering. This is what we learn from verse 22. The cross is central to Jesus' identity and the cross is the very will of God for the salvation of His people. Jesus must suffer, He says. Friends, this this centrality that we're meditating on here together has massive implications for how we should live our lives and pursue our ministry together. It It has massive implications. So let me try to explain what I mean. What the world needs most right now and every age, what the world needs most is to see the glory and the grace of Christ crucified. That's what the world needs to see most. And therefore, our calling is carried out most faithfully when we are known to be a Gospel people. Look, it's just a good gauge. When people think of you, do what they think of you first and foremost as being is a Christian? The cross is central to Jesus' identity, and therefore the cross is central to our living as His people. That's the connection that I'm trying to make. We we do the most good when we remain the most centered on Christ and Him crucified. And listen, friends, this is not an attempt to evade the sharp edges of life in this fallen world. This is not an attempt to prevent or to keep ourselves from having to say hard things. No, this is an example of how the Scriptures tell us to do the most good in the midst of a fallen world. So when I say we do the most good by by keeping the cross central, I'm not trying to get around the hard stuff. I'm trying to get to it and help us see how we do the most good. So I'm going to give you an example. Think about the Apostle Paul and his model for ministry in the Corinthian church. Just to remind you, the Corinthian church was a mess, and that's putting it lightly. People were engaged in rivalry. They were showing partiality. Among members of the body, they were 
favoring the rich over the poor. There was sexual immorality of a kind that not even the pagans would tolerate, Paul says. People were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Brothers and sisters were arguing over various issues and they were insisting on their own rights at the expense of other people's consciences. In short, the church at Corinth was a mess. It was a mess. So, what was the Apostle Paul's model for ministry in this mess of a church? Well, he actually tells us. Paul tells us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Notice, friends, Paul didn't say, I determined to know Jesus Christ, period. He said, I determined to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You see, it was the cross that stood at the center of Paul's ministry in in this mess of a church. And and from the perspective of the cross, from the perspective of Jesus' suffering for His people, Paul was able to do the most good in the Corinthian church. Again, think about it. In light of the cross, Paul called people to repent of their partiality. If each of us is a sinner saved only by the blood of Christ, then there can be no inherent superiority from me towards you or from us towards them. To insist upon that would be to demean the blood of Christ that saves all who trust in Him. In light of the cross, Paul also called the church to repent of rivalry. If only Christ can save, then there's no reason to prioritize my gifts over your gifts or His calling over her calling because none of us is able to save. Only Christ can save. All that matters is Christ. So let each person serve as God calls him to serve and be content. And in light of the cross, Paul also called the church to surrender their rights. Surrender their rights in service to their brothers and sisters. If Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing at the cross, then you and I also ought to lay down our rights, our preferences, our freedoms in the Lord in order to better serve others, even those whose consciences might be shaped differently than mine. Do you see what Paul did? He said, I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then in the light of that cross, He spoke directly to the trouble. He spoke directly to the mess. He wasn't trying to get around the hard things. He was speaking to them through the Gospel. Brothers and sisters, what I'm urging us to see and recover is the centrality of Christ crucified. Crucified. Raised up. Sacrificed on behalf of His people. See that reality of Christ and Him crucified and recover it for the life and ministry of the church. Again, I want you to see that this is coming from Jesus Himself. Jesus provides us this emphasis. Verse 20, Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. And then verse 22, the very first thing Jesus does is teach His disciples about the necessity of His suffering. The cross is essential to Jesus' identity because it's only through the cross that salvation is accomplished. And the cross is the expression of God's will because it's only through the cross that Scripture is fulfilled. And therefore, friends, we must be a people who are centered on the cross and shaped by the cross. 
Now, we're going to reflect on this more next week when Jesus calls his disciples to take up the cross and follow him. So we're going to, we're going to think more about how the cross ought to shape our lives as Christians. But for now, let, let's consider the third point in this passage that completes the picture of Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? Number three. He is the Christ who suffers and rises again. Jesus is the Christ who suffers and rises again. In verse 22, Jesus tells His disciples that He must suffer many things. And then Jesus adds three specific experiences. You notice them there in your Bible. He must be rejected by the Jewish religious leaders. He must be killed at the cross. But then note the final piece. He must be raised on the third day. So, the resurrection, friends, is already in view. Jesus knows He must suffer. The cross is essential to His mission. And yet the cross is not the end of Jesus' course. Resurrection is the final word. It's God's final word on the life and ministry of Christ. Friends, it's this final piece, the the resurrection, that completes the picture of Jesus' identity. He must suffer and die. He must suffer and die. But the reward of Jesus' suffering is glory. The outcome of Jesus' death is actually life. Both life for Himself and life for those who are united to Him by faith. So as difficult as Jesus' mission will be, He can embrace the cross with absolute willingness. And even with joy, because Jesus knows that the Father's will for Him is glory in the end. So just as before, friends, this this truth ought to shape our view of the Christian life. The resurrection ought to shape our view of the Christian life. How could you describe Jesus' life just using the terms of verse 22? You could describe it like this. It was suffering now in order to receive glory then. Is suffering in the present, but infused with confidence that there was glory to come. Suffering now, glory to come. And friends, it was this hope of glory that sustained Jesus through His suffering. For the joy that was set before Him, the writer to the Hebrews tells us, Jesus endured the cross and the shame and is seated now at the right hand of God. So, This is the shape of Jesus' life. Suffering now in order to see and receive and be satisfied with glory to come. And what I want you to see is that that same shape, that same shape here is meant to define our lives as Jesus' followers. The The shape of the Gospel, the shape of the cross now forms our lives and how we think about our life in the world. It's suffering now, endured by faith, in the hope of glory to come. Understand, friends, the Gospel gospel both saves us and shapes us to live in a certain way. It saves us. 
We're saved because Jesus, the man of sorrows, suffered in our place, shed His blood for our sins, and rose again on the third day. We're saved by the Gospel, and at the same time, we are shaped by the Gospel so that we see life through the lens of Jesus' cross. We live today by faith, trusting that the sufferings of this present life are not to be compared with the glory that is to come. How do we know that there's glory to come? Because... The Christ suffered many things, including rejection and death, only to rise again on the third day. Do you see the the shape here, brothers and sisters? This is where we find the strength to walk by faith in today's trials. We remember the life of our Lord who suffered for us and rose again for our salvation. And His suffering secured our salvation. Yes, praise God. And His suffering now shapes our perspective, and resets our expectations for how we ought to live today. It's suffering now by faith in the hope of glory to come. So as we continue to walk by faith in the midst of a fallen world, and as we're plagued by sorrows within and hardships without, what this passage is calling us to do is have the cross rather than this world, shape our perspective on life. It's not glory now, and then more glory later. Suffering now, endured by faith, for the glory that is to come. That's the shape of life in and through the Gospel. Christ suffered and then entered His glory through resurrection. And armed with that confidence, we too can suffer by faith, trusting that our glory is secure with the risen Christ. And so if I had to sum all of that up with just a one exhortation to you here at the end, the exhortation would be this. Don't lose heart, brothers and sisters. Don't lose heart. Don't fall for the trap of living only with the perspective of the present. Plead with God every day to shape your view of life through Jesus' cross and resurrection. The Christ must suffer but He suffers in order to rise again for our salvation and also for our confidence as we live today. I want to close this morning by going back to the urgency of Jesus' question. Look again one more time. Verse 18, Jesus first asked the disciples who the crowds said that He was. Then Jesus pressed deeper. Verse 20, Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks. You see it? First the crowds, verse 18. Then you, verse 20. Friends, that's the urgency of this question. It's not just what other people say. It's not just what other people say. It's what you say. Jesus here is calling all of us to come to grips with who He is. To confess by faith and believe that He is the Christ who suffers for His people and rises again for their salvation. Friends, is that the confession of your life this morning? Is that the confession of your life? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? That He suffered and died on the cross in the place of sinners like us and that He rose again on the third day for the salvation of His church? Not do other people believe that. Not do other Christians believe that. Not do mom and dad believe that. Do you believe that? 
Who do you say that I am? Do you believe this Gospel truth? I pray that you do. In a world swirling with questions, I pray the Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see that this question is the question. Who do you say that Jesus is? So trust Him, friends. Trust Him. And you will find that salvation and glory are richly provided in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all who believe. So won't you believe? Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us by Your grace to be people who are shaped by the cross. We are saved by the cross of Christ. Father, praise God. And we ask also for the grace to be shaped by the cross so that our lives will bear the testimony of Christ both in what we say and in how we live. Father, help us, help us to return to the centrality of Christ and Him crucified. Father, please keep us focused on what is the main thing both in our own lives and in our church. And remind us, Father, that this is how we do the most good to the world is by upholding Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We pray in His name and for His glory. Amen.